Someone reminded me this morning that a recent discussion in the PCUS, <clears throat> PCUSA, PCUS, forget the initials, PCUSA, had to do with um, whether they could put the hymn in Christ alone in their, uh, in their hymn book, and they decided they could only do it if they could leave out uh, some of the explicit references to the atonement. Thankfully, the authors wouldn't give them permission to do it. All that to say, I'm really grateful that we have hymns like the one we've just sung in our hymn book, um, in which we can sing so clearly and freely of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, That's not a, a proud statement. It's a very humbling thing to realize that this truth is preserved in our midst. And it's this truth that is found in Romans chapter 3, as we focus again on this section that we've been looking at, um, real turning points of the epistle to the Romans, beginning in verse 21. Our focus is going to be on verse 25, but we're going to read the entire section beginning with verse uh, 21. Let's bow in prayer before reading. Our Father and our God, we offer to you our praise that the Lord Jesus Christ did atone for our sins through his own shed blood by dying in the place of sinners. And as we attempt once again to get down deeply into the logic of Paul the Apostle in this passage, it would be with the greatest, the greatest pleasure to know that someone hearing this tonight who does not know Jesus, would come to know the Savior. Would you, Heavenly Father, bless the ministry of the Word here as your people are fed, as we grow in the knowledge of Christ, would you bless us with new converts, people who are lost and undone, who need a Savior, and we ask that you will bless that the Word of God proclaimed from this pulpit would be used of you to build up your church in the wonderful truths, these grand old truths of the gospel, and that we also may be eager to take them to a lost and dying world and revive your church, professing church in our country as we see these great truths in eclipse, that once again they would be believed, that we would submit to the authority of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 3, beginning with verse 21. This is the word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance he has passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. 
Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Look again at verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now this wonderful passage, and I would suggest to you that this passage that we've been looking at for the past several Sunday evenings is like a a coffer filled with gems. There are too many. It's, It's inexhaustible. But the diamond in the midst of the gems, that great, large, shining, brilliant diamond in the midst of it all is verse 25, the verse that we have just read together. Now, we have seen that the Apostle Paul has been in these first three chapters up to verse 21, dealing with sin, guilt, and wrath. And look again at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. The Apostle Paul said there, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So you see, here's the problem. How is it that sinners can be justified when we have sinned against God, have incurred guilt, and therefore are deserving of His wrath. That's the problem. How can God forgive? The answer comes as we come to verse 21 and we read, but now, that's the hinge, that's the change. Everything is different as we come to that verse. The dramatic turning point in Romans is verse 21 of chapter 3. The flow of the argument is God has provided righteousness, that is to say a perfect record, that is received solely by faith. We don't work for it. We do not earn it. We do nothing to deserve it. It is altogether received by faith. Altogether, the grace of God through the redeeming blood of the cross in a way that is consistent with His own character, He has provided atonement for our sins so that the judge submitted Himself to be judged in our place, which gives all the glory to God. It excludes all human boasting, Paul says in this passage. Now, this verse 25 is the crux of the whole matter. Remember that some have called this verse the Acropolis of the Bible and of the Christian faith, and not without reason. So, The first thing we want to do as we come to the passage and look a little more deeply is to say this. God must have wrath against sin. God must have wrath against sin. Now, if you were to turn to a commentary by a modern writer such as C.H. Dodd, fairly modern, you would come to verse 18 of the first chapter that speaks of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he would redefine the whole idea of God's wrath so as to evacuate it of its meaning. What I'd like for us to do before we do anything else is just to turn to a few passages in the book of Romans to see how this theme of wrath is, in one way or another, pervasive. So back in chapter 1, we read in verses 16 through 18, the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God, now that's this imputed righteousness, this perfect record, is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now turn to chapter 2. Notice verse 5. The apostle says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now in verse 8 of that chapter, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Chapter 4 of Romans, verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Chapter 9 of Romans, verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 22, what if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Chapter 12 of Romans, verse 19, beloved Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now chapter 13, verse 4. For he is, he's speaking of course of authorities and those who uh, execute God's justice through uh, the exercise of of, uh, jurisprudence. For he is God's servant for your good, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, I recognize that each each of those verses use this term orge, wrath, in a way that is somewhat unique, but nonetheless, pervading the Apostle Paul's thinking, and we could turn to other passages of his epistles, is the idea that God is a just God and therefore he must have wrath on sin. And if my count was right, I think the word wrath was used ten times in these few passages in the book of Romans alone. What is Paul the Apostle saying? What's the great presupposition here? Well, the great presupposition is that the divine nature demands the punishment of sin. Since the glory of God is the end of the creature's existence, the infinite justice of God is called out upon all who fail to bring Him glory. And that's all of us, for we read in verse 23 of Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can hardly know what it means that God hates sin. All we really can do is look to Calvary and see there the Son of God hanging on a tree, bearing wrath, hearing him cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then we can begin at least, at least somewhat to see the hatred that God has toward sin. That's a fact to be reckoned with. God then has revealed his law. That's the whole point of these first three chapters. The law of God, and God cannot be just. It would be unjust of God if he did not punish sin. 
His law is the standard by which sin is measured, and we justly deserve His displeasure. The standard of the law cannot be lowered. That's why perfect, personal, absolute, complete, inflexible obedience is required by the law of God. The law is good, we are not. The law is good and just, we are sinners and unjust. The law, the standard, cannot be lowered. And God has never lowered that standard in order that we might be saved. If we are to be saved from the wrath of God, if our guilt is to be removed, the whole logic of Paul the Apostle, gospel logic, if you will, is that only God could make provision for his own wrath to be removed. No modern refinements will lessen the biblical teaching, such as C.H. Dodd mentioned earlier, who simply, it seems to me, reflects the culture and what the culture has come to think. Our culture thinks that it's unworthy to think of God as wrathful against sin and to think of him as a just judge. But the result has been to remove from among us the sense of sin necessary to see the whole point in the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. The whole point of the coming of Christ is removed. If you remove this concept of the justice of God and the inflexibility of his law. So God, in his justice, must punish sin. The second thing that we need to see is God's love for sinners in providing atonement. God's love for sinners. Now notice whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There in verse 25, God put him forward. The term that is used there, put forward, it's translated here, may mean purpose. And if so, that it stresses the eternal plan of God to redeem sinners and how God has eternally purposed to save us from our sins. But whether it means in this particular instance his purpose or whether it means to set forward, that is to say, to placard for all to see as we have in Galatians 3, in either case the point to be noted is that God himself provided the sacrifice. So there can be no polarization between wrath and love. The great objection to propitiation in modern theology is the thought that God loves and therefore if God is a God of love, then he cannot be a God of wrath. Now I could point to innumerable places in which that thought is found. It fills pulpits today. Men who believe that we should preach that God is a God of love but God is not a God of wrath. The New Testament, and this text in particular, will allow no such polarization of wrath and love. It is the God who hates sin, and therefore who has wrath against sin, who in verse 25 is said to have put forward the Son of God as the sacrifice for sin, so that the wrath of God might be removed. And this means that the whole problem that Paul has been building in the first three chapters has been answered by this verse. Yes, we have sinned. Yes, we have broken the law of God. Yes, we are under the wrath of God. Yes, God must punish sin, but he has done so in his Son, and therefore the law is upheld. That's the point of verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. 
The law of God is upheld, and God can justify sinners and now remain consistent with his own nature, which is the point of verse 26. It, is, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this also means that the liberal attack on conservative theology at this point, namely, that somehow conservatives are representing the Son as twisting the Father's arm to save us by the sacrifice of Christ, is utterly groundless. Never has any Reformed theologian or any Reformed preacher, to my knowledge, ever represented such a vile idea. The Son is provided by God Himself, by the Father. Propitiation is the propitiation that is provided in God's own love. And so never have Reformed thinkers presented. Hear me, never have Reformed theologians presented the Son as twisting the Father's arm in order to make Him love us and to show mercy. Rather, the atonement is the provision of the Father's love. And so if we turn to Romans chapter 5, we read in verses 6 and following, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well, you see, don't you, that in these verses, the whole presupposition is that the atoning work of the Son that removes wrath and frees us from that wrath is the provision of the Father in His love. Now, I hope that's not a commonplace to you, but I assure you, that this truth that we're now expounding and looking at in many a pulpit is in one way or another denied today. Love provided for the removal of wrath. There is no polarization between wrath and love. The God of justice is the God of love. And He did not set aside His justice, but in His love He sent His Son to redeem us from our sins. The third thing then that we see is the removal of wrath by blood. Look at the verse again, verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The backdrop undoubtedly is in large measure Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. And I'm considering looking at that passage again with you next Sunday evening so that we see the backdrop to what Paul is thinking. Think, thinking about it, <clears throat> for understanding the book of Romans. Now remember that John Owen said that there were four essential elements in any propitiation. Uh, we said that last week. Let me refresh your memories. An offense to be taken away, 
a person offended who needs to be pacified, an offending person, a person guilty of the offense, and a sacrifice or some other means for making atonement for the offense. Now, the means for removing wrath, according to this text, is blood. The means is blood, and that's remarkable. Because God is the offended party. Think about this. Is this not remarkable? God is the offended party. And yet He provides the sacrifice of His own Son to remove the offense. I am the one obligated. And yet God provides the remedy. God, the offended party, provides for the offense to be taken away. And what this means is that old, glorious, wondrous, yet despised truth of substitutionary atonement. Christ dying in our place. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Let me remind you what Bonner says in his old commentary on this. The grand reason for this jealousy in regard to the use of blood is the blood is the life. When poured out, it shows atonement, for it expresses the life taken, thou shalt die. To you, sinner, what should be more tremendous than the sign of your own life taken? And to your God, O sinner, nothing is more solemnly glorious than the blood of his own Son. Earth and heaven stand still when the blood is poured out. By the life is the atonement made." When the spear reached the heart of Jesus, the blood was poured out from the very seat of life. The heart and the pericardium were both pierced, and therefore the blood that then gushed forth with the liquid fluid of the pericardium was blood from the warm seat of vitality. And as such was the type, so the reality. Jesus did then pour forth his whole soul, affections, feelings, faculties, and every power of his soul, all were laid down in suffering obedience to his Father. The heat of wrath melted all, and all thus melted flowed forth in that wondrous stream. The law took its penalty out from the very source of life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And in the shedding of his blood, to use the words of old Professor Murray, John Murray, Jesus offered himself, and it was the whole-souled sacrifice of the Son of God that took place on the cross when he paid the infinite penalty for our infinitely deserving sins of God's displeasure. And this is where the various theories of the atonement that once again are coming into vogue in the church must be set aside. There is, for example, the governmental theory of the atonement, that the cross just shows God's justice, but that God was not really under any necessity to appease wrath in order to forgive sins. The moral influence view that the cross shows love, and love is really what saves That when we look to the cross, we see it and we're moved to repent and so forth, but that it really did not in any way remove the wrath of God. These are the viewpoints that now are being proclaimed by evangelicals in pulpits. But no, the New Testament teaches consistently the true, penal, substitutionary atonement of the Savior. 
It may be repellent to the sensibilities of modern and postmodern man. During the modernist uh, fundamentalist controversy, the, the modernist thinkers would talk about the religion of gore that the Christians, that the conservatives had, this religion of blood, this religion of gore. It may be distasteful to people, but the Bible says it is absolutely necessary for our salvation, and there is salvation in no other and in no other way. A.A. Hodge, in his book on the atonement, makes this gem of a statement. A substitute is not a different man in a different place but a different man in the same place. Ooh. I think you want to hear that again, don't you? A substitute is not a different man in a different place, but a different man in the same place. And you'd better be glad. In my place condemned he stood. In my very place Condemned he stood. And that is the essential point about the cross. And if that is not preached, the cross is not preached. Which leads us to the fourth point. God's character is vindicated in justifying sinners through the shedding of the blood of Jesus. Now this is the teaching of the text. And I think we've shown that. But I want to ask this question, how is it possible How is it possible that Jesus Christ shedding his blood could remove guilt? How is it possible that Jesus Christ shedding his blood can be a propitiation removing wrath? If I've sinned against the God who is infinite, and if his law represents his infinite nature, and if I have sinned against the infinite nature of God, and I deserve therefore his infinite displeasure, how is it possible that Jesus Christ's suffering could remove it. How is it possible? The answer is the dignity of the person of Jesus accomplished it. The one who died for us is very God of very God. And this is the one who became incarnate, obeyed the law that we broke, and paid its penalty on the cross. And that means that not only is justice satisfied, But that justice now speaks, listen to this, not only is justice satisfied, not only is wrath removed, but justice now speaks for the believer. You see? You get that? Not only is justice completely satisfied, but now justice speaks for the believer so that it would be unjust for God to punish us once Christ has been punished in our place. The Father made the provision of His Son to remove His wrath once for all. And this is also the biblical logic for what we call particular redemption, or at least one necessary element of it. As Spurgeon said, redemption that does not save is not worth preaching. The cross of Christ really purchases sinners. If the wrath of God is satisfied, the wrath of God is satisfied. If justice is met, justice is met. And so, believer, when you sin, and you do, and I do, and oh, how I hope we grieve over it. Here's the thing to remember as we believe and repent and continue to grow in grace. 
justice has been met. Justice has been satisfied. And believer, you will not be punished. You will not be sent to hell. You will not know the wrath of God because the wrath of God has been completely and utterly spent on the Son of God who suffered in the place of us sinners, believers in Jesus. So is there someone here tonight, as we've entered as deeply as I think we possibly can into the logic, the mind of the Apostle Paul on this great matter? Let me ask you very simply, do you know Christ? Uh, Is there someone here and you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ? I call you to Christ. And only by His blood can you be saved from your sin. Only His blood can make the foulest clean. Again, as Spurgeon somewhere said, God ceases to be God when He ceases to have mercy upon the soul who seeks pardon through the blood of Christ. And so Toplody wrote these words. From whence this fear and unbelief hast thou, O Father, put to grief the spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made and to the utmost farthing paid whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest speak peace and liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. Amen.